Hey, good morning, everyone. Oh, that sounds so great. Hey, I want to share with you an email that absolutely has made my day. This email came to uh, Pastor Greg that was on the stage just a moment ago, and it's from uh, somebody who's been connected with our congregation. So just listen. I think you're going to like this. It says, Greg, I wanted to take a moment and say thank you to you and to the rest of Four Corners staff. Last week's message really stirred my soul. Being in the Middle East, I see the lack of wealth on a daily basis. But hearing the message from last week opened my eyes to how blessed we are. Thank you for your continuing desire to serve and glorify God and to provide messages that challenge us and allow us to grow. Aside from talking with my wife, and he names her, the posting of new messages on the Four Corners website is the highlight of my week. I just want you to know, Four Corners, that you can't underestimate God. I guess you could, but it would be foolish to do that. God's reach into what we do goes so much further. So here's a guy who every week looks forward to hearing what's happening in Westchester, his home community, as he's over there serving our country. And I know he's going to hear this, and I wanted him to hear me say how proud we are of him. But I thought you could, if you wanted to, take just like five seconds and make enough noise to be picked up in this small microphone and say to him how grateful we are for his service to our country and to us. Would you just, by a hand clap, do that right now? Excellent, excellent. Oh, it's so encouraging. Hey, we are in the fourth week of Crazy Love, and I've got some very exciting stuff to share with you today. I think it's going to just thrill you to know what your church is doing and how God is moving in people's lives. And I also have some very practical stuff from God's Word that I'm going to just be straight with you. Absolutely raked over my soul this week. I mean, it turned me upside down. I, I knew generally where I was going. I prepare messages several weeks in advance. And yet, at the same time, God used opportunities in my own life, challenges in my own life, to make the truth of this message more real to me often than many messages I preach. In other words, long before you have heard this sermon today, I've heard it and let God begin to work on my life. And I want to tell you straight up, I have a long way to go, but I'm really, really excited to share this stuff with you. I want to take you back in time a couple thousand years to the time when Jesus was walking around with his disciples. And he had been teaching powerful teaching. When people heard him talk, they said, here's one who talks like he has authority, like he knows what he's talking about, like he's not just making it up to sound good, but it really would penetrate people's hearts when he would talk. And he was healing people. I mean, people were being raised from the dead. People who couldn't see or speak were getting back their sight and their ability to speak. It was powerful. He was feeding thousands of people at a time with the smallest bits of food. And he was walking around telling people things like this, that there's forgiveness for sin, that you can have a relationship with God and based simply on what you do, instead based on an entirely different principle, based on the principle of God's grace and his love for you. And he was turning the world upside down. And he had gathered a group of people around him. We call them the disciples, the 12 apostles. They were like his entourage and they loved what he had to say. They loved the second chance he gave each of them. They committed their lives to following him and doing their best to live by his teachings and to internalize what he was saying and who he was and what he was about. They believed, even though they hadn't fully unpacked it, that he really was the son of God, that he was directly from God. They believed he was God in the flesh. It would take them a lifetime to understand the implications of that, but they were bought in early on. And Jesus had been with them for three and a half years And then the Bible takes a turn if you read in your Gospels, those books in your Bible that tell the story of Jesus. 
it takes a turn and Jesus begins to talk about going to Jerusalem, a specific city, the capital city of their area. It was the seat of religious influence. It was the seat of governmental influence. It was the seat of power and wealth. And Jesus says to his disciples, his entourage, I'm going to go into Jerusalem one more time. They had done it multiple times. They had traveled all over that area, in and out of Jerusalem, other little cities. But he says, I'm going to go to Jerusalem one more time. Come with me. It'll be the last time I go. And then very specifically, he says to them, when I get there, let me tell you what's going to happen. They're going to arrest me. They're going to put me on trial. They're going to have trumped up charges. They're going to find me guilty. He goes so far as to say, they're going to crucify or kill me, he says. They're going to kill me. And you can imagine if you've been following Jesus for a number of months, few years, and you're really on board with what he's saying, and you love the agenda and the momentum that's been stirring in the hearts of minded people, you see the popularity of him, that everywhere he goes, man, there's just a throng of people. And you have discovered for yourself that if you're connected to Jesus like they were, not only is he popular, you're kind of popular by proxy. And here he is saying all of that, this is the last time I'm going to go to Jerusalem because at the end of this time in Jerusalem, I'm not going to be with you anymore. He's so clear on this. The Bible tells us in the Gospel of Mark, one of those four books of the Bible that tell a story, that he says it three times to them. And each time he says it to them, they respond in a rather unique way. Each time he says, I'm going to go to Jerusalem, they're going to arrest me and kill me. This is it. We're coming to the end of our run together. Each time he says that to them, they say something like this to him. That's not the way it should be. And if they don't say it that way specifically, they demonstrate by what they do say that what he has just communicated hasn't sunk in. It hasn't been internalized. One day, he says that to them, I'm going to go to Jerusalem. It's going to be the last time. Things are going to go down. Unlike what you're anticipating, this is the end of our run. And a couple of his disciples come to him, James and John. And they say, hey, Jesus, when you get to be king of this entire region, When you get to be in charge of this entire region, can we, me and my brother, can we sit on your right hand and on your left hand? Would you give us positions of honor when you come in your kingdom and you're the king of this entire area? He had just said, this is the end of our run, and they're asking him if they can be number one and number two in his kingdom. Now, I don't know if you know the story of Christianity, the story of Jesus, but the truth is, he does go to Jerusalem. And when they get there, things begin to shake down exactly like he described. And he does something powerful in between the time he told them what was going to happen and when it happens that sets for all of us a profound, life-altering, paradigm-shifting example. It's a truth that needs to penetrate our hearts one that I'm still uncovering, one that I think as Christians get this, it's a game changer. It completely revolutionizes what we understand about our God and what we understand that our God wants from us. It's a big deal. It's the kind of thing that when we do it, all of us look at it and go, oh, that's a good thing. When we, hit, when we see this thing that I'm going to talk about in somebody else's life, we look at it and go, they, yeah, that's the way it's supposed to be. And when we run against this principle we're going to talk about today, we all look at it. We may not have the language or the theological understanding to express it clearly, but intuitively we all know, hmm, something didn't quite click here in this situation. It all hinges on a meal that they had together. It was in a place called the upper room. It was simply a large room on the second story. In that upper room, 
The night before Judas, one of his 12, betrays him, all of them sit down together and have a meal. It was a celebration meal of something that had happened in their cumulative history, their, their cultural history. It's called the Passover meal. It was when years before there had been an event in their ancestors' history where God had miraculously blessed and saved and secured them. Because it was such a profound turning event in history, every year they would celebrate it as a group of people. It was a part of their identity. It harkened back to God's goodness. It reminded them that there is a plan and a future when you walk with God, that you are not alone. And they were celebrating this Passover meal. And so they were going through the customary activities. And the Bible says in John chapter 13, that's where we're going to look today if you want to turn there in in your Bible to John chapter 13. If you don't have one, the words will be behind me on the screen. The Bible says that when they got together for that meal, after he had predicted his death, let them know what was going to come. After he had sat at that meal and said, somebody at this table is going to betray me. And that person was sitting right there before the cross, before the resurrection. The Bible says this in John chapter 13, verse 2. The evening meal was in progress. And the devil had already prompted Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, to betray Jesus. Now look at this next line. Jesus knew that the Father, God, Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power and that he had come from God and was returning to God. Now, let's just pause for a second right here. Jesus knew (laughs) that the Father had put all things under his power. Now, he knew this all along, but something happened in this meal right on the eve of beginning what would be for him his darkest hour. An hour in which he would cry out, why? Why do I? Why am I forsaken? Why am I all alone? There was something about the, the placement of this event that sparked a, a heightened reality in him that John's trying to communicate to us. He knew at this very moment before it gets very ugly for him that all power had been put in him. All authority had been put in him. That he had come from God and when this was over, he was going back to God. He knew that at this moment in time, he wasn't just the most powerful person in the room. He knew that he was the most powerful person in the universe. The reality of his dual nature, fully human and fully God, was fully pressed upon him in this moment. All authority had been given to him. He may have hearkened back to an experience he had several months earlier where the enemy of our soul, the devil that was referenced here, that was working in Judas's life, tried to tell him, you have all authority. You can do whatever you want. We can make life easy for you. He knew that while the enemy was using that to trip him up from God's purpose, the raw statements are true. All authority really was his. He could do whatever he wanted. He did not need, he did not have to go through what was about to happen. He could stop this if he wanted to. He knew at this moment that he could rain down judgment on every single person, put history to an end, and this would be his right as the king of the universe. And the reason why we're drilling down on this passage right now, and the reason why I want you to so fix in your head the reality of who Jesus was in this moment. He wasn't a guy caught up in a series of events that he could not stop. He wasn't a man caught up in a series of circumstances that were beyond his control. 
This is a man who's in full control of every single dynamic he chooses to be fully control, in control of. I, I, I've never been in that situation. I, I, but you haven't either. So I'm not trying to get you to understand Jesus' emotional state. There's a principle for the followers of Jesus in this room, for Christians in this room. And by the way, if you're not a Christian in this room right now, you should probably want to listen in really intent here. Because I'm going to, over the next few minutes, describe something that you're going to know, even if you're not a follower of Jesus, is exactly what followers of Jesus are supposed to be like. And you might sit there and kind of nod your head, if not intentionally or, or physically, maybe internally, you're like, yeah, there's, there's some goodness in here, and I wish Christians acted this way. Well, you're not alone in that. All of us in this room wish Christians acted this way, following the example of Jesus. So what way is that? Let me, let me just ask you this. Have you ever been in a situation, guys? Have you ever been in a situation where you were the most powerful person in the room? Listen, don't, don't, make, don't, don't think that I'm asking you if you held some positional authority. I'm saying, have you ever been in a situation where maybe if it was just two of you, you had authority or you had influence or you had resources or you had power that the other person in the room didn't have? Have you ever been in a situation where you could have flexed your intellect, you could have flexed your position, you could have flexed your resources or your authority, and by doing so, made the other person understand just what the hierarchy in the room is. You're up here, and they're down here. If you're a teacher, like I used to be, yeah, I've had to do that a few times. I had to remind a few people, hey, there's one person in the room who has the role of teacher, and it's me. So shut up. I've, I've had to do that, right? There's nothing wrong with understanding positional authority. It's an important thing. I'm not just talking about positional authority here, though. I'm asking you, have you ever in your marriage been in a situation where the scales were tipped on your side? You had the moral authority because your position was more right than somebody else's. In that position, you were in the superior place. Have you ever been in a situation where you simply could out-talk because of your skill set, the person next to you? Maybe there's an employer in the room and you really do carry positional authority. What does God want us to do when we're the most powerful people in the dynamic? What does God want us to do when it hits us like it hit Jesus? In this situation, much more limited, of course, than Jesus' situation. But in this situation, I carry an awful lot of influence or authority or power. It happens every time parents interact with their kids. It happens in marriage dynamics all the time. It happens when somebody has emotional hold over somebody else. It happens in school environments. It happens in boyfriend-girlfriend relationships. It's normal. It's every day. What does God want us to do? There's a truth here that is so powerful, it can change most every relationship you have in life. This is a game changer for marriages. This is a game changer for parents and children. This is a game changer for employers and employees. Verse three, here's what it said again. Jesus knew that the father had put all things under his power and that he had come from God and was returning to God. And then verse four, look at this word. So, so. Before I even read the rest of the verse, this word, this two letter word is so important to the story. 
as he realized how much authority he did, in light of realizing how much authority he had, in light of realizing the position he was in, so, not like casually, but with great intention, because he realized the authority he was in, the position he held, so, here's what it says. So he got up from the meal and took out, took off his outer clothing and he wrapped a towel around his waist. After that, he poured water into a basin and he began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that was wrapped around him. Now, a little culture here for just a second. Back in the day when Jesus was doing his thing, the lowest person on the totem pole in the room, their job was to wash the feet of everybody else. Washing the feet wasn't simply a sign of servitude, although it really was. It was a practical activity you went through because people wore sandals much less nice and fancy than the ones I have on that really make me look awesome and cool and hip and young. They wore strips of leather wrapped around their feet and they walked on dusty roads, the same roads that camel and sheep and donkeys walked on. And there was a lot of filth and disgusting junk in the street. And so when you would go over somebody's house, the lowest person on the totem pole, the youngest child, or if you had any means about you, the servant, or somebody hired specially for the occasion, they washed everybody's feet. But never, ever did somebody of significant authority or position stoop to wash anyone's feet. And yet Jesus did exactly that. I can guarantee you that at this moment, there is complete and total silence in the room. All the arguing about who's going to be the greatest and when you come in authority, we want to be on your right hand and left. And all the discussion that happened all the way to Jerusalem, right now there's silence as they watch Jesus. Somebody they'd seen do a powerful things. Watch people lean into him. Watch him have compassion. Somehow grab the power of heaven, bringing it into individual people's lives. They saw that happen. They watched this man take off his outer garment, a sign of humility, wrap himself with a towel and begin to wash the feet of each person who had said to him, you're our rabbi, you're our leader, you're the one on top. And here he is stooping in front of them. He began to wash the disciples' feet, drying them with a towel that was wrapped around him. In verse six, he came to Simon Peter who said to him, Lord, are you gonna wash my feet? See, Peter had seen the very hands that are about to wash his feet reach out and open blind eyes. He had seen those very hands grab a friend and raise that friend from the dead. Are you going to take those hands and are you going to wash my feet? Verse 7, Jesus replied, you don't realize now what I'm doing, but later you will understand. There's going to come a time that the impact of what I'm doing right here is going to dawn on you. And when it does, it's going to be powerful. You don't understand it fully, but it's going to happen. When you skip down a few verses, the impact of this thing becomes clear to us. It's why we as a church are talking about it and what is going to make you excited as we as a church try to unpack it. Here's what it says at verse 12. When he had finished washing their feet, he put on his clothes and he returned to his place. Not the position of servant, but to the position of rabbi and leader. And he says, do you understand what I've done for you, he asked them. Nobody answered because he just said, you don't understand what I'm doing. You know, maybe later on you will. And he says, you call me teacher and Lord. And rightly so, for that's what I am. He doesn't say, ah, don't, don't, don't call me teacher and Lord. He says, no, no, you call me teacher. You call me Lord. And you're right. 
I am. That's who I am. That's my position. That's my authority. That's my title. Then he says, now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. I've set you an example that you should do as I have done. Very truly, I tell you, no servant is greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. What do you do when you're in the position of power or authority? When you can leverage your will over somebody else? Jesus told his disciples when they were talking about the very thing, he said, you know how the Gentiles and the pagans do this? When they are in positions of power, they lord it over other people. They take advantage. They, they stress their position. And then he looked at them and he says this phrase, but not so with you. This is not the way Jesus people are supposed to be. This is not the way the followers of Jesus are supposed to be. We don't take what we're entitled to, rightful title and position. You call me Lord and Savior. You call me Lord and Teacher. You're right. But I don't take that and use that to beat you up with it. I don't take that to, and use it to keep you down. I don't take that to flex my role, even though I could. What I've done for you is I've humbled myself and took on the role, not simply as a leader, but as a servant. And if you'll follow my example, Jesus says, and serve in those positions that you could flex intellect, you could flex power, you could flex your resources. If you'll follow my example and instead serve people, you'll be blessed if you do that. It'll change your life. It'll change the tone of your marriage. It'll change the tone of your workplace. It'll change the tone of your school. Yeah, I'm I'm, I'm teacher and Lord. But there's something powerful that happens when people in authority who have resources, who have intellect and skill that would allow them to stay at the top of the totem pole instead decide to take off their outer garments and grab a towel and serve people. We live in a very blessed country. Each of us in this room, my hunch is, maybe there's an exception or two, we don't wonder exactly where our next meal is coming from. Most of us will go home to houses that maybe aren't as nice as we'd like them to be, but they're secure and dry. We're blessed. As it relates to the rest of the world, friends, God has blessed us here in Westchester, not just, you know, around America in general. Many of us in this room, we have positional authority. You have people that, are, that you're responsible for, they answer to you. God says, when you find yourself in a situation where you are so highly blessed, where you have authority, where you have influence, where you have, what are you going to do with that? Are you going to do like the pagans? Are you going to do like the godless and simply leverage that for your own enjoyment, your own satisfaction, and your own goals? Or are you going to follow the example of our teacher and our Lord? Humble yourself. And serve. I think this is among the hardest teachings of Jesus. Because nobody in the moment decides, I don't want to serve you. I want to flex my power. In fact, it's rarely ever a conscious conversation at all. What happens instead is we simply do what comes natural and hide behind our intentionality. We hide behind our rights. 
We hide behind our authority. And in so doing, the message of Jesus doesn't catch. It doesn't happen. It doesn't shine bright. And so Jesus, when he could have said whatever he wanted to say before it all went down, he decided to not say much and instead demonstrate what his whole life was all about in one small but large action and say, I didn't come to be served. I came to serve. And when Christians do that, it changes everything. When you do that, the next time you're arguing with your spouse, it'll change everything. When you do that, the next time you're engaging the situation with your kids, it'll change everything. I don't know exactly how you're supposed to work it out, but I know that followers of Jesus are supposed to wrestle with what does it look like to have authority and entitlement and position and power and at the same time serve. I'd love to tell you that your pastor has mastered this. It's not true. And yet this is where Jesus calls us. So as a church, we're using this crazy love book reading and spiritual campaign that we're doing to try to leverage this principle to provide a token what we'd want our whole lives to be about. So I've asked Pastor Matt to join me. And he's going to come up here and I'm going to share with you a practical way that we can take this principle and say, God, would you use our activities to drill down in our hearts a real servant-heartedness? Would you take this and would you use it kind of as preventative measure on our lives so that what we do in token and with intentionality becomes more of a pattern for us? Hey, welcome. How you doing, man? This is Pastor Matt, and he's in charge of adult ministries at our church, so things like small groups and outreach. And he's honestly gifted uniquely among our staff to be an administrative guru. This stuff comes natural to him. Um, honestly, when he talks, I get lost because the details, I'm overwhelmed. Uh, but he, he knows what he's talking about. And he is leading our small group ministry. So if you've signed up for a small group, if you're in a crazy love ministry uh, group right now, what you have already experienced is some of his leadership, even if you didn't know it was coming from him. Why don't you tell folks what we're doing to try to live out this principle? Because I'm really excited about it. Yeah, as we've read through the book, Crazy Love, we realized that it gives you a ton of information. Uh, you learn about God's crazy love for you as an individual. And as you get further in the book, you learn about how you should respond with that same crazy love back to God and to other people. But I think that the the problem that we hit as we look at this is that we can get in this intake mode because crazy love is a great book and you learn tons and tons of stuff. But we get too easily to this place where we take and we take and we take and we never apply what we're learning. And so we want to combat that actively. So you, you, you're saying that you feel like sometimes it's easy in a church or when you're engaging something like crazy love to really be a receiver. Yeah. Because it so harkens to a deep need we have, but it doesn't often come easy to translate that to, well, if I'm really loved, then I should love people. Exactly. I had a professor in college that called it spiritual constipation. And wow. I think that's pretty accurate. That's, that's a really interesting visual. Yeah. The, the I, analogy breaks down. Yeah, right there. Um, yeah. But you get the idea. I do get the idea. Um, <laughs> tell folks what we're going to do to unstop this yeah. hindrance. Um, <laughs> one, of the, one of the things I loved um, at Four Corners is that I've heard this phrase a lot, that the uh, depths of Scripture lie on the surface mm-hmm. to be mined. And so I think that if we are honest with ourselves and with scriptures we interact with it through crazy love and apply what we learn in a way that's tangible it will help us to unstop ourselves yeah. good well give them the idea so um galatians 6 9 puts it this way 
it says, so let's not get tired of doing what is good. At just the right time, we will reap a harvest of blessing if we don't give up. Therefore, whenever we have the opportunity, we should do good to everyone, especially those in the family of faith. I love this passage because I know the tension points that we have when we talk about serving. And he hits two of them right on the head. The first one is, don't give up on doing good. You know what you're supposed to do. Don't get weary in doing the right thing in life. And the second one is, he says, uh, whenever you have the opportunity, as Paul writes this, he seems to understand that life is busy and chaotic. And he's not telling us to always do this, but intent, with intentionality and the limited time you have, take the opportunities that you have to serve people. So I, I love that concept. I think it just makes sense for life. It, it, it deals with two major issues. One is, I can get tired if I feel like the entire weight of this serving thing is all on me. I don't have all the time in the world. I've got practical things. I have to earn a living. Yeah. So how do I do this? And then the the other thing is just the challenge of figuring out when you're going to do this. Yeah. I think most people, as they see practical needs in the world around them, whether it's a guy on the side of the street with a sign that says, we'll work for food, or somebody that you work with that you know is going through a divorce and you don't really know how to deal with them, I think we too easily land in one of two places, either over time, we develop this kind of spiritual cataracts where we just ignore it so long that it becomes blurry and we don't even really notice it. Or on the flip side of it, we get paralyzed because we see the need over and over again. We don't know what to do with it, so we just don't do anything. Yeah. So we are going to take, as a part of our crazy love, if you're in a crazy love group, you've heard about this or you yeah. will, and if you're not, you're going to hear about it now as an opportunity to get involved. We're going to yeah. rally the troops around doing some intentional changing the way we yeah. typically do life. So let me free you guys a little bit because as I read Crazy Love and as I just think about the needs that I interact with in my life on a daily basis, it's overwhelming. And I want you to get this thought in your head and I want you to let it soak in deeply. As we do this Crazy Love Serve, do for one what you wish you could do for the many. Do for one what you wish you could do for the many. In the limited time take advantage of the opportunities you have. This is, a, this is a biblical principle. It is. It doesn't sound fair, right. but it is. Right, because we feel like, well, I can't do it for everybody the same way, but I, you know, I do the same thing in my house. I love my kids. I'd like to think somewhat equally, but how I express that love is very individualized because they're individuals. Very much. And I don't hide behind the fairness thing in trying to create an individual plan. So you're saying in a similar way, do for the one or two people God's already put in your life or the one or two people you'd be willing for him to put in your life. Yeah. But maybe you would love to do for everybody. I can't stop, stamp out poverty, right. but I can help somebody in poverty. And I can't stamp out hunger, but I can help somebody. I can't always take care of the, and my, my heart is for the fatherless, the widow, the orphan. Yeah. I can't take care of all those needs, but I can do for some orphans and widows and fatherless. What, what I think is so cool and I've seen it you see it played out in scripture over and over again I've experienced it in my own life when I've lived out this principle that as you do for one what you wish you could do for the many the many are blessed that your actions go beyond the care and the love and the service that you show the individual in a way that it multiplies beyond what you could ever expect Um, if you try to reach the many you just get overwhelmed but one you grow weary in doing what is right exactly Um, But if you reach the one with intentionality, um, whether it's serving with an individual, um, taking care of someone's needs, joining an organization that you really believe in, through that really intentional action to dial down to the one, you really do change the lives of many around you. It's it's like Jesus taking off his garment 
of position and authority and humbling himself and washing yeah. feet. He didn't wash everybody's feet. He washed 12 feet, yeah. 12 sets. That's good. And then he said, you've seen me, now do the example. So exactly. we've chosen a week over the course of the fall and into the winter where we're saying to this church, do we're going to serve. Tell us about it. Um, so the goal is, as a group, over the next couple of weeks, for you to gather together, whether you're in small, uh, crazy love small group or a different group, and you decide you want to participate in this, either one's fine. Talk about the needs in your lives around you that you see and choose one. Pray about it. Talk about it. Land on a need, whether it's an individual that you feel like you need to bless and care for, whether it's an organization or a movement that you feel like you need to take a day or two to be a part of, and do it. Don't just talk about it. Um, do it. And so that what that looks like practically is Sunday, November 13th through Saturday, November 19th. We're calling it Crazy Love Serve Week. Every Crazy Love small group is going to do it. If you're in a non-Crazy Love small group and you want to do it, that's awesome. And we're even going to have some other groups for people that are involved here in the church that maybe didn't get a chance to sign up for Crazy Love small groups but still want to be a part of this overall movement of service to obey and to care for one for the heart that we have for everybody. It's really good. So practically, guys, here's what we're saying. It's a call to action where we're saying find some time in that week. So for every person that turns in a Connect card, whether you take a next step intentionally or not, we'll send you this information so you don't have to remember the details. You'll get it on Wednesday from us. Take some time in this week and figure out a need in your life, somewhere that you could leverage your position, your influence, your resources, your intellect, and use that very thing that God's blessed you with to serve somebody else. And we're going to do this as a church intentionally, hardcore for a week. So all over this northern Cincinnati area, there will be little small blessings yeah. going out. And then we're going to come back and celebrate that the very next Sunday. And then again, yeah. two weeks later. The very next Sunday, we'll have just a couple really brief testimonies of some cool stuff that's happened during the week. And then in early December, as a church, we're going to come back. And as stories start to flow in of lives that are changed and seeds that are planted and blessings that begin to take place because we are faithful, we'll see how our service to the one has really blessed the many in northern Cincinnati. So this is a grassroots. We're not providing the resources. We're not carving out your calendar. We're not calling your secretary and saying, hey, make sure they got... You do this with yeah. cooperation in a group so that your resources and your intellect and your, it goes further than you'd ever do on your own. You come together in small groups and you find a need and you fill it. I heard somebody this week say to me, hey, I, I have uh, an eye for something that's going on at One Way Farm. You know, if you've been around here, it's a ministry that we've blessed time and time again. And they want us to kind of take it to the next level. That's, all, that's exactly what we're talking about. Yeah. There's a person that said to me this week, hey, I know of a family that's going through this thing and we could do this... And that's exactly what we're talking about. We don't have a list. Your eyes are good enough. You can see the need around you. Now, yeah. let, me, let me say this, Four Corners. If we do this in token, but more than token, we allow it to begin to transform our hearts by the power of the Holy Spirit. If you will go into this with prayerful willingness to be changed, here's what God will do. He will revolutionize the way people see this church and this community. We want them to say, I may not believe in their doctrine. I don't believe that Jesus is the son of God. I'm not going to give my life to him. They may say that, but we also want them to quickly follow it up and say, but those people are so generous and so kind and so sincere that I want my daughter to marry somebody like that. (laughs) I, I I want employees like that. I want people like that in my life, even if they don't buy into our presuppositions that Jesus is the greatest thing this world has ever seen. 
We think that we can do that in tokenism until it becomes a pattern and gets established in our hearts. So that's what this is all about. So why don't you grab out your connect card. We'll take a couple next steps with us. Stay up here with me. Let's take a couple next steps together, friends. On the back of your connect card, you'll see A, B, C, and D. I've just laid out four suggestions for how we can try to begin living this out right away. Next step A, if you want to do this, here's what it says. I want to begin a personal relationship with Jesus for the first time. Maybe you heard me say that he took off his authority and came to serve. And when I said that, it penetrated your heart and you felt yourself warmed. We think that's the Holy Spirit calling you into a relationship with Jesus. We'd like for you to, by faith, just check this box and say, I want to give my life to Jesus. I'm a sinner. I want to receive his forgiveness. I want him to lead my life. I'm willing to follow. If you want to do that, check the box. We'll send you some information about that. We want to hound you, but we want to help you understand what that commitment means. Here's next step B. I'm going to work with my small group to serve the community. If you've already heard about it all in your head, if you haven't, this next meeting, get together and say, what do you guys see as needs? And then begin to pray and say, now God, what's the one thing we could do to leverage our money, our intellect, our time, our resources, our position, and serve people with what you've blessed us with? And then next step, C. If you haven't signed up for a group, boo. But if you haven't, here we go. (laughs) I'm going to find a four corners group to serve during our crazy life. You check this box. We'll send you a list of people who've said, look, I'm willing to take people that didn't commit to a group to do this one thing. And this week... Check that box. We'll send you that information. It's the easiest thing for you to do and to, to get involved in this. It can take you a little effort to actually follow it out. And the next step, D, here's what it says. I have some repenting to do today about lording it over people instead of serving them. I had position or authority and I used it to leverage and lord when God called me to serve. Can I tell you, this one's mine. And I think that if we will humble ourselves and follow the example of our leader, God will do powerful things in our lives. We will be blessed. You want to be blessed when Jesus says you'll be blessed if you do it. You want that. So I'm checking this box for me. And I'm asking God to help me not only feel bad, but make a turn in my behavior and become more like he was in all the areas of my life where I have influence or authority or intellect or resources that I could leverage. And instead, I want to serve with those things. I want you to pray with me right now. Lord Jesus, thank you for your grace and your mercy. God, be with us as a church as we step forward to do for one what we cannot do for all. And God, would you let that seed of willingness to follow your example begin to sprout and grow in our lives and change us, Lord. We want people outside of these doors to say, I don't know what they believe, but I certainly like what I see. We pray it in the name of Jesus.